everyone, welcome back to Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works, with your hosts, Zora Musa and Happy Mwende Kinyili. Hi, I'm Zora, the Executive Director at Mama Cash, and I'm feeling good. I've been eating a lot of mangoes lately, because I had a chance to be away in a place that had a lot of mangoes, and that was amazing. And I'm happy the Director of Programs at Mama Cash, and during the break over December, i I started binge-watching this new show called Madame Secretary, which gives me so many emotions. But we'll talk more about it in the course of this podcast. We're excited to be back after a break with our very first episode of 2019. And in the spirit of the new year, new you, we're introducing two new segments. So stay tuned. So today we're talking about art, culture and media, how we engage with these things as feminists and how feminist activists are engaging with them. And we wanted to kick off 2019 with this topic because next month, March 8th, is International Women's Day. And you know what that means. It's the Mama Cash Feminist Festival. Every year we organize this intervention, celebration, and manifestation of feminism, the arts, and activism with open mics, artist talks, performances, and of course, a lot of dancing. So if you're in the Netherlands, join us on March 8th at the Mama Cash Feminist Festival. It's in Amsterdam, Utrecht, or Rotterdam. For more information and for tickets, head to mamacash.org. So to help us explore these themes more, in today's episodes, we'll touch on different topics, questions such as what does it mean to consume mainstream media as a feminist? What makes art political? What does it mean to produce art as a feminist or produce feminist art? And what does what role does art, culture, and media play in feminist activism, if any role at all? Consuming mainstream media while feminist. We all do it. I know you do it, Happy. How do you relate to this? How do you watch what you watch? Because I know it's TV (laughs) while being feminist. What do you do when your fave is deeply problematic? Just skip that episode (laughs) and convince yourself that the next one won't be as bad. But so confession, I watch too much TV. I binge watch so many different TV shows. I, I I think if you have, yeah, you're having tea with Mama Cash, so you get a chance to get to know the intimates. I could list for you so many TV shows. And many of them are deeply problematic, but I find myself, I kind of put my politics on the side unless, yeah, there's some things that are so deeply egregious, then you skip that episode. But I, find, I experience it as a suspension of some kind. Um, because... Most of the things on TV, like if I start dissecting it politically, I would watch two and a half shows, if even that. And I do like shutting off my brain, so that's how I experience it. But that's how I consume my media, at least my TV shows as a feminist. What about you? Yeah, I think similar approach. I think it's um, it's escapism. And... Yeah, I, I'm sometimes watching things that definitely I don't agree with politically and, you know, I'm shouting at the TV or whatever it is <laughs> and doing it anyway. I think I'm more careful with things like books, yes. for instance. Mm. I don't I don't read books. I mean, I can agree or disagree with some of the content of a book, but I feel like the kinds of books I'm reading aren't as problematic as some of the TV I'm watching or some of the movies I'm watching, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking now, what's the difference? Why do I make that choice about books but not about t- 
TV and movie? Is it just about the availability of, you know, what's out there for me available to consume easily, freely, accessibly? Mm, no, I, I do the same. I find myself more selective with books. But I don't know, I feel... I feel like with a book, and I guess the, here's the bias in itself, I'm engaging my mind. I'm actually using my brain to think about and engage in the content. But for TV, I literally just want to shut off my brain and be entertained and not need to deal with whatever is coming at me. So for books, I'd be more careful. But for TV, I'm like, eh. music also, I find myself a little bit the same way. I'm like, I'm not really listening to the lyrics. So it's okay. I can bump and grind to this song and not pay attention to the lyrics. The ones that I do, um, like, spend a lot of times, either I'll spend my money on them, I'll go to the concerts, or I'll buy the music, is the music that I, that I have some reason to be interested in because of the person who's producing it or the content of it. But... Like the things I'd listen to when I'm working in the office, I don't really care. It's just like, again, it's shutting off my brain in one part to concentrate on my email. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that raises an interesting point. As a consumer, if you're using your, your euros um, in some way in your consumption, does it matter where you're sending those euros? Mm -hmm. And how do you make choices about that? And I was thinking about what, what is, again, the difference between TV and movies or for instance, yeah, concerts or theater performances or art galleries. When I have to spend my money, am I more careful about where that goes? And to be honest, I'm not. Like, I'll still go to the movies and watch a silly movie. Mm. I mean, not, you know, there's lines, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the highest, most noble line, let's be honest, uh, when it comes to where I go to the cinema. But for instance... Yeah, if I'm buying a book, I would be very choosy about mm -hmm. what I spend the money on. Um, and I think about, you know, artists and struggling artists and the kinds of artists that are, yeah, I would want to support. And am I actively doing that? No, probably not. Mm. No, I think, like, when I moved to the Netherlands and I had an apartment and walls to put hang stuff up on, I was very deliberate about where I bought my art and what kind of art I bought. And so for the longest times, my walls were empty because the kind of art I wanted to buy wasn't available to me in the Netherlands. And then I had an interesting conversation with somebody who buys the same type of art but identifies very differently from me. And I had those times where I don't want to have a political conversation about why. And this is a white woman who... So I primarily... I only buy art from um, folks on the continent in Africa. And a white woman was having this conversation with me. And, was like, and you know, we're like, yeah, we buy the same type of art. It's like, oof. I don't want to have this much further, so I'm just going to keep it moving. But it did, yeah, it's like... The, sometimes what you see, like the final product of what consumption looks like is informed by such different political positions. And I, I, I sometimes want to have the conversation, sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point around how we consume, right? And how where's consumption, where's the line between consumption and appropriation? Mm -hmm. Where's the line between consuming that's you know problematic anthropologically or politically mm -hmm. um but also if we're all consuming if we're all taking a break we all go to the movies and we watch these like ridiculous movies or these bad tv shows or whatever it is um 
how how much is that messing with our minds? I mean, a lot, right? That, mm-hmm. The answer is a lot. <laughs> it's a false question. And so much about what we think about the world and know about the world comes from having consumed mm-hmm. certain things that are deeply problematic. And what what do we do about that? Yeah. Like how, and if anything, at least in my life, the amount of time I spend consuming the problematic stuff is so much more than the time I spend reading this book that energizes me and makes me feel good about myself and the world I move in. Um, but the thing I struggle with, like for, from a deep place is, but I'm tired at the end of the day, right? I've been saving the world one email at a time and I just want to do something that shuts off my brain and then I I do the next step of but this is what I've taught myself right this is what to me means relaxing and share and shutting down Mm -hmm. if I taught myself different like if I watch this really amazing informative documentary maybe I could teach myself this new habit and be consuming uh, media that builds me and helps me move through the world in ways I want to but I haven't fully convinced myself yet so, confession, I actually hate documentaries. Oh. And there are some amazing documentary film festivals in the Netherlands. And every year I have this group of friends who, like, plan out, look over the, th- the agenda and are like, okay, which documentaries are we going to go to? And I, I have this, like, little thing inside me that was, that's always like, how do I hide? <laughs> how do I hide the fact that I'm hiding and don't want to see a single documentary? And... It's, it's partly related to the tiredness. For me, watching a documentary is so much more visceral. Mm. So I have to read some hard things during the day. If I have to watch that on top, I don't know why I wouldn't just be walking around crying all the time, right? That's how I feel about documentaries. It's just like, it's an invitation to bawl your eyes out about, of course, there's the story of the triumphant so-and-so against all odds who accomplished, but it's still kind of awful, right? Mm-hmm. Many documentaries are like, here's an awful situation or an awful thing. And it's not that I don't want to be informed about the situation. It's just I don't want to sit there for two hours mm. watching somebody struggle on a big screen and just feeling exhausted at the end of it. Yeah, I have the same thing about documentaries. <laughs> so whenever it's happening, people, folks are like, what did you go see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to be that person who's like yeah I don't want to go because if you get me in front of a documentary and sit me down or it's a thing that's happening I'll watch it and I'm actually fine with watching everything and having that visceral reaction but to take myself there that's the place no I don't my brain just like between going to IDFA or sitting down and watching Burn Notice I'm gonna watch Burn Notice (laughs) confessions from some feminists yeah yeah but i don't know but we haven't clearly we are consuming media in ways that is uh maybe this is the idea what we should do is and i try to have these conversations so that i feel a little bit better about myself as a feminist is then we can deconstruct all the tv shows that we watch and what's wrong with them be like see at least it's some form of political education <laughs> This podcast is made possible by Mama Cash. 
As an international fund for feminist activism, Mama Cash gives grants and other kinds of support to women, girls, trans and intersex people all around the world who are collectively fighting for a more just and joyous world. And we want you to hear more about their work. That's why in this new segment, you'll hear more about the groups we support. And as often as possible, we'll make sure it's from the groups themselves. For today's episode, we got in touch with one of our grantee partners who works in arts, culture, and media. Hi, everybody. Special thanks to Mama Cash for inviting me to participate in this podcast. My name is Selena, and I come from Femix Network of Female Creativity from Serbia. Our group was founded because we had the need to promote women's voices in arts and culture. Since 2010, we have organized more than 50 events, concerts, exhibitions, poetic nights, workshops, and researches related to female involvement in arts and culture. We publish Femixeta, which is an annual compilation of Serbian female musicians and composers. We have organized drumming workshops for girls, and we are organizers of the first and only Girls Rock Camp in Serbia and Balkan region, which will be held for the third time in the summer this year. We are currently in the finishing stage of Balkan Girl Power project that promotes young female photographers from our region and preparing to launch a new call for this year's Femixeta. We believe that media has a great influence on creating public opinions and back in 2013 we actually did a number of workshops for high school students on the topics how media is creating gender stereotypes. We honestly believe that various organizations and groups can influence change on many levels. The first is by showing a good practice, as I believe we are doing with our Girls Rock Camp project. We are showing the project's participants something alternative to what they are seeing in the mainstream media, and believe me, mainstream media in Serbia is traditional and full of gender stereotypes. The second is influencing that exact media by sending them a press releases and insisting on using correct gender pronouns. Media has a great role in creating a change, so every time we are published somewhere, I imagine that there is at least one little girl thinking, I can be a drummer, or a rock star, or anything else, no matter what anyone says. And by organizing programs for girls, besides having a direct influence on them, we are also influencing their local communities in taking a small but important step towards creating a wider change. Want to learn more about our work, the work of our grantee partners, and how you can help support them too? Then head to mamacash.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletter to be the first to hear news and stories about feminist activism. So, Zora, we've just been talking about how we consume media and, you know, the ups and downs of our consumption patterns. Let's shift a little bit to talk about us producing art and media in different forms of culture. Do you think culture actually changes when the producers of that culture change? And if so, how do you think it changes? Yes, is my answer. Okay. <laughs> um, am I allowed to say the world is better <laughs> when there are more, when there's more diversity in the production? I think, for me, I think about how how everything we know about the world would be different if we were learning about it from different vantage points. Mm-hmm. So, when um, there are more women producing all these TV shows that we're watching, all these movies that we're watching, how we actually understand the world, um, the kinds of topics that we would be learning about, um, the perspectives on the same topics, they would be completely different. I mean, not completely, but they would be different. And I think about that. I think about how much of what I know about what's true about the world comes from having consumed things that are from vantage points that are completely not related to where my vantage point is. Mm -hmm. And so I've consumed... Um, an idea about the world that 
actually doesn't match my how I walk through the world mm -hmm. and how that's true for so many people. Mm. What do you think? Yes and no. So yes, in terms of if we were to start from zero and we start producing culture all over, I do think there'd be a significant shift because we'd, we'd have so many different vantage points. I struggle a little bit because we are products of the world, right? So the way the world has been up until this moment has had um, primarily white men producing most of the arts and culture that we consume. And we've we've learned about the world through that lens. And I imagine we produce things again through that lens. So I don't always imagine just by virtue of being, say, a woman or a intersex person you will fundamentally produce something that is through a different lens because your one the market that you're producing for assumes demands a certain type of a certain type of product and probably your own imaginations of what is produced could be not necessarily have to be but could be informed so but this isn't to say that i think we should remain the world should remain um, having white men as producers of arts and culture, definitely not. But I do think there's there's a need for us to do some kind of, for us in the amorphous us, to have political education as part of the process of production of arts and culture, because then people are thinking about the the ways that power gets replicated in the very in the very process of production, and that happens. I mean, some of the most I, this is where then it's not often TV shows, but like art and stuff you see in, or music also, um, at least the ones that I pay attention to, you'll see folks who are doing really edgy things that will provoke different reactions and conversations. And often those are folks who ha who are politicized in their thinking and you're like, oh, that's really amazing. Um, so I tend to think a little bit yes and no. Mm -hmm. That's a very long answer. This makes me think about um, uh, the idea of, of representation mm -hmm. and so when I think about it in terms of political representation um, it's a similar kind of question right would governments work differently if there were exactly. if there was a higher representation of women for example in in, in parliaments or whatever and um, it's true that there are some women in governments that are not feminist I still think there's a disruption when there's more women in that space mm -hmm. and I think that's where I'm coming from in terms of cultural production, media production, art production. It's not that all the art that gets produced is politically different. Mm -hmm. It's that it's politically different that there are more women producing work mm -hmm. that then gets consumed by the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's value just in that, just in and of itself, um, to have more, more recognition. So I want to be careful there also of the idea that it's only men are producing the arts and culture. It's not. It's that mainstream um, mainstream consumption is of a certain kind. It's not that the production isn't happening. It's that it's not recognized or mm -hmm. consumed in the same way or acknowledged or remunerated in the same way. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, no, I agree. Um, now, when you think of the example of representation and then extrapolating it to art, I think of an example in the Kenyan parliament for the longest time, politicians, uh, members of parliament couldn't go into parliament with a bag so women couldn't go into parliament with their handbags. And those was finally a really long debate and it shifted something just because suddenly there were people who were like, no, I actually need this to be in this space. And it changed how that parliament then did its operations. And yeah, I think I agree with you in that way that there's sometimes 
just having a different body who has experienced the world in a different way in that space will change that space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you, could you tell me a little bit about maybe some of the work that you've seen or that you've consumed or that you've, in whatever way, that has been produced by women, girls, trans and intersex people and that has maybe provoked some thinking for you about the world in a different way, if mm-hmm. at all? Yeah. I mean, earlier we were talking about the um, our secret hate of uh, documentary film festivals. <laughs> and actually, one of the film festivals, a couple of the film festivals I am deeply committed to attending here in Amsterdam and which I enjoy are... One is the Queer and Migrant Film Festival, mm-hmm. and the other is Transscreen. Mm. And for some reason, I don't experience those film festivals in the same way at all. And I think partly it's because of who's producing it. So the topics can still be very difficult, mm-hmm. or not. I mean, they can or may not be. But somehow the whole context around it, because of who's going to be, who I know are the filmmakers, who I know are the artists behind it, mm. um, because I know the, some of the politics around the production of those works and the way they're being hosted in the film festival, I just experience those festivals completely differently and I'm okay to go to them and I don't have to hide <laughs> from my friends and, and hide from the festival. I actually seek them out. Yeah, hmm. I hear that. How is it for you? Oh, this is a difficult one. I think, as you're talking, the, the thought that was running through my head was I don't necessarily want to go to see things that are set up in a space and you like come and see this production of art. Um, I'm more interested in the everydayness of how we live and move through art and culture and what that means in our conversation. So I have um, a friend of mine who's very deliberate about making sure that she creates beauty in her everyday life. And then she has conversations with people about why beauty matters for her. And I find that every single time I sit with them, like my mind is completely blown from yeah deconstructing what beauty looks like, but also just the intentionality around being reaching for beauty um, and making sure that the the reaching for it is something that she has conversations with people about, and she she can be provocative in, for example, how she'll dress. Some days, um, she'll be really made up and makeup in because she's a beautiful person like conventional standards of beauty and she will sometimes play that up and have a conversation about how the world reacted to her that day and other days not play that up and have a conversation about how the world reacted to her and I find that it always like mind-boggling like when I grow up that's the kind of artist I want to be <laughs> yeah yeah that that connects to something I wanted us to explore a little bit which was um the production of art and artistry and how you can think about that as something outside yourself. So you produce a poem or Mm -hmm. a piece of theater or whatever it is. But what about the fact of us as artistic people or uh, people as art artists and artistic and the fact that our first canvas can be our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so how we adorn, for example, um, makeup, not makeup, piercings, tattoos, the clothing you choose, the patterns you choose, um, you you can be representing beauty, certainly, but in any case are an artistic expression mm-hmm. somehow in the world. Yeah, I think that the idea I find appealing at an intellectual level, mm-hmm. 
Um, and then I'm very happy with everybody around me doing it. When I think about myself doing it, I mean, I do by default because whatever whatever adornment you, you, you put on yourself, you're moving through the world. And I do agree, you're, you, you become art or you are art um, or you contribute to art. There's different ways of framing that. But I think where I struggle when it comes to my own body is thinking of it in the, like, when I get up in the morning, if I have to think about, okay, so these pair of jeans, what are they saying about my mood today? Um, Or what am I trying to communicate? That's the place I'm like, wow, that feels a lot. And I know um, there's an activist we work with fairly closely at Mama Cash who pays attention to that and um, is a fashion activist. And I'm again in constant amazement because... She asks herself those questions every day as she leaves the house. And that is her activism. And it's like, wow. And I find it powerful because you have to respond in some way because that's what she's provoking. Um, and it's such an everyday thing that you, like, for me, I don't pay attention. What's clean? That's my standard. <laughs> Deep thoughts from Happy. <laughs> Hey, welcome back, and welcome to our new segment, Feminist Mishaps, where we share anecdotes of those moments, you know, those moments we've all had, call them blunders, or just call them awkward, because they are, when you're going along being a feminist, and suddenly everything goes slow-mo, and you realize you are in fact having a super awkward feminist moment. Maybe you're messing up, maybe someone else is messing up. Maybe it's all just too funny. Okay, so here's a blunder that comes from our colleague Emma. So Emma's at the coffee machine yesterday morning, and she tells us, and we're all talking about our weekends, what we did, and she shares, she's like, so over the weekend, my partner and I, we did some home improvement stuff. So we built a bunk bed for the kids. Then our other colleague, Hadavik, turns to her and says, wow, that sounds really impressive. What did you do? And Emma's, you know, looking a little bashful, and she's like, well, really, I made the lunch and played with the kids, and my partner did the actual bunk bed building. So I have a, I have a confession to make about my, one of my feminist blunders. So it was last year at the Mama Cash Feminist Festival. We had the Gorilla Girls at the Stedelijk Museum. And I was super excited because I've, I've loved the Gorilla Girls for a really long time. And we got to meet them without their masks. Mm. And so one of them I met and she introduced herself as Frida. And I thought that was her actual name. I hadn't understood <laughs> that they stay in character the whole time. And so oh. she was... Introducing herself as Frida Kahlo, which she clearly evidently wasn't, I took her to to mean that her name was Frida. And I carried on this conversation with her all about like her name and her life and whatever, fully thinking that she was being completely honest with me. And it was all just part of the performance for her. And it was only after she actually put on her mask and introduced herself on stage with me in the front of the audience that I realized (laughs) that woman's name is not Frida. <laughs> Whoops. Oops. Please reassure us that we're not alone in our blunders. We want to hear your feminist mishaps. You can send us your confessions and we'll share them on future episodes. Anonymous submissions are also welcome. You can reach us at tea at mamacash.org. That is T-E-A at mamacash.org or on Twitter at mamacash. The power of art. 
What makes art political?、Mm-hmm. Earlier, we were talking about the body as the first canvas, and you were talking about how you don't want to spend time in the morning thinking about what are you going to wear and what might it tell the world about who you are and what you are. And that's interesting to me because when I look at how you're dressed, some days for me it feels like a political statement.、Mm. It feels like a very specific choice you've made. Not all the time, but on some days, it's like okay, today you're gonna, for example, represent gender this way versus that way.、Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was.、Um, that's what I was thinking about when I was talking about the body as the as a site as a canvas site, because I do think we express our gender,、mm-hmm. and that's a political choice about how we choose to express gender. I think many people don't think about it as a political choice. They are socialized to do it in a certain way, but it is political, right? How we、mm-hmm. choose to manifest our genders, and We do that in very subtle ways sometimes, right? Did we grow our nails, or did we cut them? Did we paint them?、Um, and some of us are much more deliberate about how we present our genders. And、mm-hmm. I think that's why I was thinking about、um, it in terms of it's not just aesthetics; it's actually political production、mm. and that artistic expression about well, I really liked this color or whatever when I put it on my body is is still a political choice、mm-hmm. because it's still saying something, usually about gender. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I hear that, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes I do. I have to say, I I am deliberate about my gender choice and what、um, gender representation I want to have when I go into certain spaces, because of what I know I'll encounter in that space.、Um, but yeah, and I I think it's it's interesting to think about the ways that、um, I think gender is an obvious one. But there's also moments in which, for me, I think about race and what what are the ways in which because my I can't I I can't、um, I can't camouflage my race as obvious no yes I can't camouflage my race in the ways that I can camouflage my gender,、um, but even with that, what does it mean to represent? So I for folks who don't know, for example, I I have piercings on my face. Um, and this folks, Sorab is one of them who's convinced that that's part of my racial expression,、um, and I don't know. I, I'm I, convinced. Yeah, you say that's part of my theory, part of the diagnosis for why、I've, I pierced my face like I did. Uh huh.、Um, no, you forget this conversation. I think、had. it was your.、Uh, it was my.、Um, Interpretation of your resistance to racism in the Netherlands. Yeah. Yes. Yes.、Um, but interesting. I never think about it when I'm in the Netherlands. Whenever I'm on the continent, I'm so aware of it because it feels like a very white performance of a, a very white thing to do.、Um, but yeah, I do think about that that my canvas in that way.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot about、um, some of the partners we work with and how they use art and the power of art in their activism. And I'm interested in this right now because so many forms of activism are being criminalized around the world, and art offers some opportunities for activists. It can be very repressed in certain contexts. So, poets, novelists,、mm-hmm. they they tend to get targeted very quickly in very repressive contexts.、Um, but other forms of art aren't always seen as so political, and yet. Really can be in terms of social transformation, changing people's norms and ideas about things. So, if you think about music, for instance, or dance, and I think about how so many groups of people have resisted, for example, colonialism, genocides,、um, other 
kinds of really harsh repressions through dance mm-hmm. and incorporating within dance um, a defense of their culture, a defense of their identity, and martial arts even, really practical things like um, learning how to fight, physically fight. They weren't allowed to train, so they used dance mm-hmm. to actually make them some str- themselves physically stronger to then be able to fight. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, yeah, and I th- what you're saying also makes me think of one of the other questions that we were exploring earlier about high versus low art, or um, I think the what I'm talking about is more about culture than art, but that there's certain forms of everyday cultural production that I think are very central to how we resist as a community. So something like cooking and eating together, and how we don't write this, it's not thought of as art or culture, but, uh, or something that you know, that unless somebody paints it, then once it gets painted, it suddenly becomes art. But the process of that, how I think that is so central to resistance and how we build community and resist together and even sometimes share messages with each other because eating together, most, not all, um, societies is not seen as a threat, but... As soon as you get up and make a piece of poetry and and perform that, that is seen as a threat. So how do we as feminist activists use the forms of quote-unquote low art that aren't considered as forms of art production or cultural production to do our work of resistance? Um, I don't know why the idea of quilts came to my head mm-hmm. and how quilting was used historically by women to send messages, right? Um, and that was such a integral resistance strategy that you know folks want thinking the thing you cover yourself with is an is a message tool but what are the things we could do and i really hope no folks who shouldn't be listening and listening to our tactics (laughs) (laughs) but that's an idea of how to and not an idea like it's revolutionary but just thinking about that and some of the ways that our partners use quote-unquote low art in their work that makes me think of the role of storytelling and song also Mm -hmm. in culture making and how we were talking earlier about production and consumption in a very capitalist frame, mm. right? Versus sharing of song or of stories and how we learn our histories, we create our narratives, mm. we share our ideas, um, we preserve legacies, we honor ancestors through that, mm-hmm. through oral histories and oral storytelling and oral song and um, how that's such an important part of culture and is art, is artistic expression, can be done well or badly mm-hmm. uh, and but isn't consumed in the same way or isn't seen to be consumed in the same way. It doesn't fit in the context of an idea about production and consumption, right? That, mm-hmm. that frame doesn't even work for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're saying my gut reaction I felt myself getting angry when I thought of languages and how um, so much of different communities cultures is transmitted and carried forward in language and so many languages are dying because of colonialism and the oppression of and language justice or language injustice and um, and I didn't have anything other than I just wanted to do a bit of a runt and scream and be like oh my gosh because something as you know, the 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 ways a lot of times for quote unquote the the languages that are being that are dying or being killed, um, the the forms of culture tend to be minimize minimize minimized is that the word made very small and into this small pocket. So, for example, um, 
growing up in different parts of the continent in Africa, you'll see African traditional dance done in this very performative box, right? It, this is the only place in which it exists. And it's done often for tourists or as a tourist thing. And you get up, you you put on your get up and you, your costumes and you dance and then you go home and you live your life. But prior to colonialism, that was life, right? Life was, you. you're in the middle of making dinner and you start singing and dancing and you don't need to wear a costume because you're dressed as <laughs> you're dressed. Um, and so, and the songs themselves have been, have become so, are so few, right? Like when I think of the songs that I can sing, for example, in Kamba, which is my first language, they're like three or four and that's messed up. So not a solution, just a runt that <laughs> was like bloody colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've actually really appreciated about Mama Cash's approach to understanding art as political is from the very beginning, it invested in women as producers of art and culture. And it makes me think about things like feminist presses Mm -hmm. and feminist blogs and feminists creating space for feminists to create and produce um, and hold that content and have it, you know, maybe it's zines, for example, the zine movement was really powerful in being able to just um, put the means of producing art into the hands of feminists and spread that around. And I think also about the value we place on different kinds of art and and artists and how certain kinds of artists are supported to thrive and other kinds mm-hmm. of artists are not, are not recognized as artists at all. And I think a little bit about... Um, Something I learned from, I think it was from our colleague Amanda, who said something really interesting to me once about her her partner as an artist, and we don't we don't pay artists for the incredible work they do. The work that they do is not it's not the art necessarily; it's the space they create for us to imagine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is priceless. Thanks for listening. You can find Mama Cash on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We want to hear from you. It would also really help if you reviewed us on iTunes. You can give us a quick star rating or leave a comment. And again, for those of you living in the Netherlands, don't forget to check out the Mama Cash Feminist Festival program at www.mamacash.org. We can't wait to connect, discuss, and dance with you on March 8th. Thanks so much for listening to Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works. We're your hosts, Zora Musa and Happy Munda Kinyili. We're signing, signing off, off until, until the, the next, next time, time when we talk about blood. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gigler, Mike Mirkovich, and Sophia Sewell, our colleagues at Mama Cash. We record Tea with Mama Cash in Studio Amsterdam with help from Nick DeWitt, who also does the audio post-production.